It is good to be in L.A. So you can get your face in the camera. You know, I figured if I was going to see something 20 or 25 times, I ought to know more about it. You're the best son money can buy. It's a monkey. Well, sure it's a monkey. But aside from that, it's a vivid, wonderful film. Entertainment is part of what makes us exceptional. I'm not, I'm not criticizing Hollywood. Without Derek Zoolander, male modeling wouldn't be what it is today. I, I mean, I have to say, when I, when I heard that like people actually watch this show, I was, I was actually pretty surprised. Welcome, everyone, to the fifth episode of Watching Mates. I'm your host this week, Lars Emerson, and I am joined by the magical Michael Levito. Ooh, magic. Hello, everybody. <laughs> you know who we are. This is our podcast hosted by thepostwriter.com in which we explore trends in film and cinema under each post-war president. As we go from episode to episode, president to president, Mike and I each choose a film to capture the zeitgeist of that presidential administration on the silver screen. In our episode this week, we are talking the infamous Richard Nixon. I, uh, as Mike knows, I collect quite a bit of Nixon stuff. I consider Nixonia. myself, yeah, I, I consider myself a Nixon. I don't know if I'd say fan, but like scholar. <laughs> He's just a very fascinating guy, very haunted, very interesting. Our 37th president, Richard Nixon, was a Californian. He's former vice president to President Dwight Eisenhower, and he would be nominated by Republicans for the presidency in 1960, only to narrowly lose the election to one John F. Kennedy. But from the ashes of defeat, Nixon returns with a vengeance eight years later, securing the nomination again. He portrayed himself in 1968 as kind of a representative of this silent majority that he saw in America. He was a square against the hippie counterculture and social demonstrations of the 60s. He campaigned on peace with honor in the ongoing and increasingly unpopular Vietnam War. We talked quite a bit about it in our last episode. And he declared that he had a secret plan to end the war. He then kind of illegally interfered with negotiations with Vietnam while he was a candidate in order to secure a win over Democrat Hubert Humphrey in November. And as president, Nixon would indeed end the Vietnam War, though not really with a secret plan. It was more just like bombing Vietnam and every country near it. And then also we still kind of lost. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he would open up relations with China and he improved relations with the Soviets. Domestically, Nixon fought against inflation at home with dubiously effective government price controls. But he would sign out to some pretty progressive policies. He signed landmark environmental legislation like the Clean Air Act, and the Endangered Species Act, and he created the EPA. Nixon also supported the creation of OSHA, healthcare reform. Yeah. By the way, everyone, Nixon supported a health insurance mandate, universal coverage, and low-key Medicaid for all. Not Medicare, Medicaid for all. He increased spending on cancer and health research. He presided over the height of the United States space program, you know, landing a man on the moon and all that jazz. He also oversaw the large-scale integration of public schools in the South. He enforced busing orders despite personally being against it. And he implemented the first significant affirmative action program at the federal level. Oh, he also endorsed the Equal Rights Amendment, which I would not have guessed either, but he did. He would also win re-election in one of the largest landslides in American history in 1972. Of course, however, Nixon is a man of uh, multitudes. He <laughs> called for the racist war on drugs. He consolidated some pretty racist figures and policies into the Republican Party. His Southern strategy for victory basically solidified the Bible Belt away from Democrats who had historically held it to the pretty devout Republican territory uh, it is now. He was also personally like a super racist guy, as many of the Watergate tapes have since shown. And speaking of which, how could you forget that little Watergate thing? Thing. 
in which Nixon's operatives broke into the Democratic Party headquarters and years of investigations ensued, ultimately implicating Nixon and Nixon became the first and only person to ever resign the presidency in 1974. So, yeah, complicated guy. What would you say about his legacy, Mike? Scandal's obviously the thing he's remembered for, but yes. there's some good policy there. He's a very talented politician. I think very important foreign policy-wise with detente and all of that. You talk about the progressive policies that he did endorse domestically. It's it's interesting, right? Because I'm like reading like the Rick Perlstein like series on like American conservatism. And the one thing you realize about pretty much every president is that they all did Watergate type stuff. <laughs> um, maybe not to quite the scale that Nixon did it, but they all kind of had their sort of like semi-illegal sort of like spying operations on their political opponents and they all escalated the war in vietnam when they had the chance <laughs> but those two things obviously not very good i think he he was he's such a figure of resentment i think in in that like his primary drive was very much like cultural and personal in nixon land the the framing is basically that like when he was in college there was this very exclusive club called the franklins that he was denied entry into so he found the Orthogonians, which was like their opposer. And he always viewed him, viewed the world throughout that lens, right? He was this poor kid from like a desolate area of Southern California. And all of the uh, all, all the college boys and the, the Eastern establishment, they all wanted to put him and the common man down. And his goal was, was to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, people have recently, of course, often contrasted and compared Nixon and Trump. And I... A thing that gives me some appreciation for Nixon, despite all of the bad things he's done, is like like you were saying, Nixon is dirt poor when he's born. I mean, he yeah. has family members like die in his childhood and he was not well off at all. And he like hated the elites and he would become an elite, but that never really lost like left him. It's one of those things, too, where it's like, yes, well, well I think Nixon's circumstances cost him to take sort of like a dark turn. It's like. I can't say I would not have reached some of the same conclusions he would have too, were I not in his position, right? It's like, yeah. I can't really blame him for being angry at the world. And then when he becomes the most powerful man in the world, like using that power to make sure he stays on top. Doesn't right. excuse any of the bad things he did do or his personal attitudes to basically everyone who's not a white person. But, you know, I, I think that, I don't know, it, it's interesting to look at it through that lens. It's fun fact about him is that he, while he was in the Navy during World War II, he, he played a lot of poker and actually the portion of his of his scholarship to Duke Law School that did not cover his studies, like he made up the difference with his winnings from poker. So he was like, huh. he, he was in fact a self-made man, but yeah, it, it did not always come out in the best ways. No. Yeah, complicated legacy for sure. <laughs> so there's your brief overview in case any of our listeners need a refresher on who Richard Nixon was and what he did. Now again, the rules of our podcast dictate that Mike and I each had to come to the table with a film that came out within the president's administration, give or take a year. Uh, in Nixon's case, that is films coming out starting in 1968, and we're including through 1975. So that's the year after Nixon would resign the presidency. So let's dive right in. What film did you choose for Nixon, Michael? I went with Easy Rider, released in 1969, directed by Dennis Hopper, written by Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, and Terry Southern, starring... Peter Fonda, Dennis Hopper, Jack Nicholson, Karen Black, and Tony Basil. The story, it's kind of plotless in a way. It's about these two uh, hippie bikers who make a lot of money selling drugs. 
And it's sort of like one big score. Fun fact, the guy who they initially sell the drugs to is played by Phil Spector, the controversial, disgraced, and yet genius record producer phil Spector, and they 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 sort of go on this ride across america their goal is to get to new orleans they have these adventures along the way they they meet up with jack nicholson's character who's an aclu lawyer when they get thrown in jail and they, they meet some 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 like-minded folks but they also meet some resistance to sort of like stereotypical middle america people who are not wild about them and it has a uh, kind of explosive conclusion. What uh, what this I had seen this movie before. It was shown to me in what I think is the optimal context, which is I had this APUS history teacher who was very much of this era and who had had a career as like he like defended large corporations in like workman comp suits. And he just was like racked with guilt and then became history teacher instead. He had a poster on his wall of of the Kent State shooting, like the very famous picture of that. If you took his AP US uh, history and politics course, he showed all these movies at the end. One was Thank You for Smoking. One was Bullworth, which would be an interesting Clinton pick if you've ever seen Bullworth. And then this is the last one he showed. And this is definitely the one that like most of my classmates were just like, I don't really get it. But then he kept trying to describe like, you know, they represent the death of America sort of thing. So yeah, I, I actually really enjoy it. It's, it's, it's a choppy movie. It's got its rough edges. It's it's hard to watch at parts, but I actually really enjoy this movie. I, I don't know that you necessarily share those opinions, Lars. Yeah, I don't, I don't know okay. about that. So it's funny you mentioned the AP US history thing. My AP US history teacher, who's my favorite teacher I ever had, he like used to work on Wall Street and he was so he felt so guilty that he decided to become a teacher. <laughs> so that's I wonder if all AP US history teachers are like that. Yeah, so I, I will say I'll bring Nixon into it right away. I have never felt more akin to Richard Nixon than I did watching this movie. <laughs> As Mike knows, this movie embodies kind of everything that I like hate. It's it's like you know, over use of drugs. It's hippies who don't shower. It's children <laughs> running around and with their like little artisans. And they're like, oh, here's a independent stage film in the grass. And it's like, shut up, go away. I, I would vote for Nixon in a heartbeat if I like watched this right before I went into the voting booth. So good pick in that regards, Mike. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's definitely everything a square would hate mm-hmm. at a time when you have, you know, Nixon, who's everything this film is against, as president. I, I, I did. There were some really nice shots. I actually really liked the last shot of the film too, when one of the motorcyclists dies. I guess both of them die. Actually. Yeah. So the, the way it ends, we should say, is that basically they're riding down the road, and these two hillbillies, basically it's supposed to be in Louisiana, because they just go to Mardi Gras. These two guys in a pickup truck, kind of like saddle up next to them, and they they break out their shotgun. It seems like they don't initially mean to kill them. They just want to like spook them. But they end up shooting Dennis Hopper and he dies. And then they end up shooting Peter Fonda and he dies. And they're just the wreckage of, of the bike is 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 smoking and billowing into the sky. And then it kind of it pulls out. And it's very pretty. There's also a lot of just kind of picturesque Western landscapes. Yeah. There's a lot of yeah. really, really pretty shots, even though it's mostly just you're seeing a landscape. I think where I'd start with this film, it just just kind of on the surface, the like metaphors, the representations is like the film kind of starts with them literally stuffing money into an American flag because <laughs> yes. the motorcycle is the color of the American flag. That's an interesting way to start. They also, what I think is, is weird in contrast to, to today too, is is this kind of crew you would associate with like the Bohemians, the people in the cities, mm-hmm. right? But these people, 
the protagonists in the film actually hate the cities. They're like, all cities are alike, man. It just feels kind of lost. It feels like they're just kind of lost in the middle of America in a way that, in a way that like conservatives would be today. Mm. These hippies of 50 years ago are then. I mean, I think the tagline for the the movie was literally like they went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. Right. Yeah. Obviously, there's yeah, like what you said. But I think that's what's interesting, right? So what, what we we think about, I think the counterculture as this sort of like revolutionary movement, which you know, I guess it was in in a sense, and I guess anti patriotic. Um, and what's interesting is that like you know you have Peter Fonda is literally wearing like they call him Captain America, like he has. That yeah. leather jacket with the American flag patch sewn on. His motorcycle looks like the American flag. Dennis Hopper, rather, like looks like a cowboy, basically. <laughs> and there are a lot of parallels they try to draw between, like, very early on in the film, it's like they have to fix a flat tire at this guy's farm. And, like, they draw a parallel between them fixing the tire and him putting a horseshoe on a horse. And then also, I feel like the big meal they have at his house with his, like, million children. And then that's kind of paralleled with, like, the commune they end up going to later on. I also, I, I wrote this in my letterbox review. This is like, I think one of the most deceptively like Catholic movies I've ever seen. There's just a lot of religious imagery in it. Obviously the guy says like, oh yeah, my wife's Catholic, so I have so many kids. But then like when they go to the coming the first time, like they wash their face, like it's holy water. Like when they first walk into it, when they go to like the brothel at one point, there's, you know, a bunch of, there's like paintings of the Virgin Mary and the prostitute's name is literally Mary. Mardi Gras itself is a Catholic festival, you know. All, all this stuff. Yeah, I, I get that. What, what The reason I chose this movie is because and I'm going to invoke Rick Perlstein again. A big theme throughout Before the Storm in Nixon Land, which Perlstein wrote about the 60s, is that, you know, during the 60s, in the midst of the 60s, and even today, right, we look at the primary social movement of the 60s being the counterculture, right? And it's sort of like contemporaneously uh, represented by this book called The Green of America, which was written by a guy named Charles A. Reich. And he was like older, right? He was like born in the 20s. But he was writing about the youth of the 60s and how these people were going to change America, like they were going to win. Um, and anyway, this fight against sort of like big business and the military industrial complex was going to win out and America was going to be changed forever. When in fact, a more consequential change may have actually been the rise of like the modern conservative movement, right? You know, Goldwater was essentially drafted by a group of right-wing activists. And, you know, Nixon's victory can be attributed to resentment towards this counterculture, right? And so what I think this movie does a really good job of is that, you know, seven-eighths of the movie is about the two main characters and their hippie friends, right? And honestly, like, some of it, it's just, like, I would call it, I don't mean this, like, literally, but I'd call it, like, hippie porn in a sense where it's just, like, they're literally just in scenes, like, frolicking throughout nature with other hippies, right? Like, that's... yeah. That just happens. But then you get to the end and it's like, oh, no, this is actually not about their journey. Like, it is about their journey, but they're not the ones who you're going to remember, right? You're going to remember the people who end up killing them. They're very much in the minority and everyone else is in the majority. And the majority is going to, like, see them and want to kill them and then elect Richard Nixon, right? It's like, yeah. it, it's it's about sort of like, it, it's, it's really about the collision of two bubbles, I think. And the realization that this sort of, like, hippie bubble is is not really the dominant bubble there was actually underneath all of that even though it was maybe the most striking and sort of the most ostentatious version of it in fact it was really the people in like the small towns of louisiana who had a lot more in common with the rest of the country and that had ramifications electorally like i, I think one of the most powerful things about this movie when they go into like the diner and I, it's supposed to be in Louisiana, yeah. and and they get sort of like heckled, basically, yeah. and taunted by the people and there. Everyone's like talking about them and how they look, and yeah, 
but and obviously you have like these old dudes who are doing it too but there's also clearly like a guy who's probably like around their age maybe even younger doing the same thing right and and it's like oh like you know this was not universal this 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 lifestyle and and this way of looking at the world and in fact was perhaps the minority view so yeah that that's that's why i picked this movie no i I think it's a great film for nixon even though i didn't love it 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 captures all of that super well and it captures the silent majority nixon believed was out there for him and it, it appears what there was yeah it it kind of reminds me to throw an almost unrelated book, but not too unrelated. There's a book that is overrated and not very good called <laughs> Super Gods by Grant Morrison. And basically, it's just a uh, frankly, the book is very masturbatory. And it's just him talking about how cool he was because he was a hipster and he was hip and then he was a punk and yada, yada, yada. And he always says, like, you know, the decades, they fluctuate between like hippie decade and then like a punk decade and it's like yeah whatever dude it's like i don't want to hear about the times you had sex that's that's not interesting for me that's now i'm reading this history of comic book characters the, the first bit of that book's pretty interesting it's also the only bit i've read <laughs> right because it's the only part where he's not born yet this was so <laughs> frustrating to me whatever but it, watching this movie reminded me of that book because you you get that like hippie era and it like the stuff he describes is just that it's like everyone's running around and everyone's dirty <laughs> It's just, oh God, I hate it. I hate it so much. Yeah, I, I don't, I, I don't have a ton more to say. It's the, the, the first two acts of this film are a lot better than the last act. I would say the last act being the act where they go on their, their drug trip. Very hard to watch that part. It is. It's a little nauseating. The acting is, it's hard to say that the acting is good or bad because it's not even really about that. It's Peter Fonda, who I kept thinking was Clint Eastwood every time he'd <laughs> show up on screen. This was this was Jack Nicholson's first Academy Award nomination was for this film. He, I, I perked up when he showed up. That was very yeah unexpected and exciting. Yeah, he's, he's good in this movie. And he looks only kind of crazy. Here's yes. the deal, man. <laughs> and he has a whole monologue about, like, they're not afraid of you. They're afraid of what you represent, which is freedom. I, I, I like that he's an ACLU lawyer, too, because, yeah. you know, that's yeah. something. Yeah, it's, it, it is interesting. Yeah. 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 Any Anything else on Easy Rider? I don't think so. Are you familiar with the song Mickey? <laughs> like, hey, Mickey, you're, you're so, so fine. fine. Yes. Yes. So the woman who plays Mary the prostitute is the woman who recorded that song. Ah. Uh, Oh, but you didn't know that. <laughs> I, I did not know that. What's her name? Tony Basil or Basil. I had no idea. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, that is Easy Rider and Tony Basil or Basil. Moving right along. The film I selected for Nixon <laughs> took a slightly different turn here. <laughs> I went with Blazing Saddles. This is a 1974 film directed by Mel Brooks. It is a comedy in which... A town in which everyone is named Johnson (laughs) is basically it's in the way of a railroad. There's a railroad being constructed by business interests and there's this town in the way in order to get the land that the town is on to snatch um, it. Right. To snatch the land snatching. Yeah. The guy who wants to get the railroad through is Hedley Lamar. (laughs) Hedley Lamar played by Harvey Corman. And he devises this plan where he's going to send a sheriff to the town to scare them out of town. The sheriff is black. This being the Old West, that doesn't fly, and hilarity ensues. 
Michael and I have both seen this movie countless times over. But Michael, any any quick thoughts when I I mean I chose this for Nixon. What did, what did you think? What was the first thing that jumped to mind? Okay, I'd say this is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's very funny. I, I was confused about the Nixon part, honestly. But the the one thing I the the two things I took away, I guess, is that there's sort of like I would say it's a fairly famous scene where after his first day on the job, Bart, who is the sheriff, comes back very dejected to his friend Gene Wilder, um, whose character's name is the something kid. He's got like a cowboy name. His name's Jim. Basically, and 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 he he gives this quick speech where he's just like like what were you expecting? Like you know, come on in, Sonny you know, stay a while, marry my daughter. And he goes, you know, this is like the common clay of the new West, you know, idiots. Yeah. Uh, sure. And then there's the other scene where when he first arrives, everybody wants to like, you know, kill him. But then he puts the gun up to his own head yeah. and he's like, he's like, if, he's like, if you move, like I'm going to kill this guy and they all freak out. And he basically does this all the way to his office. And when he gets done, he closes the door and he goes, man, you are so talented. Yeah. Um, I see that. It's like, obviously like, you know, Gene Wilder's comment on sort of like, you know, maybe the middle America that elected Nixon. Oh, um, absolutely. And then in a way, I, I would almost say that Bart's little performance is kind of like Nixon-esque in a way. You know, because Nixon did pride himself in, in his rhetorical skill and his ability to, to reach people. And and just, there's a, like a sense of self-satisfaction there. I, I guess this movie ends a little more optimistically than the Nixon era did. But yeah. Yeah. So I, I picked it for Nixon in part because I wanted to contrast it with we did Guess Who's Coming to Dinner for Johnson. Right. And that's kind of a that's a growth film on race. It kind of shows how the racial dynamic and racial conversation in America is changing. And then you get the backlash to that with Nixon, obviously. Right. And I think that if we're being honest as crazy as this sounds, I actually think Blazing Saddles is a much more accurate view on racial issues in America than Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. Probably right, yeah. And in, in Blazing Saddles, they say, I think it's Gene Wilder's character, the Waco kid. That's uh, he says, like, you can't win these people over no matter what you do. And I think that's, like, totally realistic. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's probably the case. There are some people, and it may actually be a lot more than you think, who are never going to get on board with this who will never want a, a black sheriff or their daughter to marry a black man. Aside from loving this film, that's kind of why I picked it up to begin with. That scene you were talking about at the beginning when he first shows up to town, mm-hmm. it's like the town preacher, Johnson, he holds up the Bible to like, you know, say, hey, let's let's mm-hmm. let's kind of maybe give him a chance. And they literally shoot the Bible <laughs> yeah. to defend their racism. They would <laughs> rather shoot the Bible <laughs> than to have a black sheriff right and I, I i there's just there's so much to work with in this movie there's gene wilder's great in this movie cleavon little's great in this movie they're really good together yeah they have great on-screen chemistry but honestly the character that i think gets the most laughs from me is headley headley <laughs> headley lamar who's like the attorney general yeah but he's also he also wants the railroad to go through he's kind of the one that shepherds the plot along right is yeah. everything that happens is he's the one pushing it so with him i think you get your best look at government in the age mm-hmm. of nixon first of all you have like brazen government corruption with the yes. the governor or the gov uh who's yeah. played by mel brooks you know, Headley's very smart, but he's not very personable at all. It's like no one really seems to like him. And then eventually he, he decides to rile up a group of like the worst possible people in the world. You know, robbers, burglars, Nazis, yeah. the Klan. Yeah. <laughs> it's like to all go after this this town and run them all out. <laughs> it's like, 
I, that might be my favorite scene in the movies. Like all these like guys standing in line to register for this draft to go like scare the town out. And it's like an equal opportunity employer. Yeah. Well, but also just because and then Gene Wilder and Yvonne Little, they you know they they like knock out the KKK guys. And they're they're in their outfits and they go to register and it's like you know what what are your crimes and they go rustling cattle and it's like oh, that's not very evil and it's like through the Vatican yeah yeah so hard it, it, it is though because it's it's like it's a dirty tricks movie right it's like Nixon's dirty tricks it but is. It's, it's them trying to like you know run everybody out of town it is. I- absolutely the more i watched it the more i was glad i kind of picked it because yeah you make fun of nixon and it's like all this stuff is just kind of obviously funny to us Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it's like so awful it's so terrible i would say it's almost like proto south park in a way in the way it just throws a lot of stuff at the screen a lot of it's i guess kind of tasteless but it's i i don't know i i think it's funnier than south park but yeah i i agree so there's all that. The other reason I wanted to, like I said, contrast it with I guess who's coming to dinner. But the other reason I wanted to pick this is we've watched several Westerns throughout this podcast. You know, we did Shane. We did The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And this is kind of this feels kind of like the end of the Westerns is it's like Westerns <laughs> have now become so ridiculous. They're funny. And so yeah. this is like kind of the cap on the Western genre as we knew it. So I, I thought it was a nice way to kind of bring the first few episodes of the podcast all kind of back together and talk about how America has changed from the Westerns we watched pre-Nixon to this one. <laughs> Seems yeah. like we're a little more willing to just say stuff out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. And the way it sort of like makes fun of, I guess, sort of like the way that Westerns would, certainly the ones that we watched, would kind of like appeal to like senses of civic duty. I was like, they have the town hall meeting and that guy, I think it's like Olin Johnson gets up and he's talking complete gibberish. And then he sits down and like five people get up, they're like, you know what? I'm glad our children were here to hear that. <laughs> that <laughs> um, Western rabble. Yeah. And then it's just like, at the end, it's like, you do it for Randolph Scott, who's a character who's never been mentioned before. <laughs> and they all look into the horizon like, you're right, we would. <laughs> Randolph Scott. Randolph Scott. Before I get into my conclusion on this movie... So the, so the protagonists of the movie who are against our government and our cronies or our criminals, yeah, it's, you know, a black man mm-hmm. who the town hates. It's a drunkard outcast, mm-hmm. you know, down on his luck, whatever he is. His backstory is not like super clear. And then you also, it's kind of like the town misfits. So <laughs> Mongo <laughs> okay. is one of them. And it's kind of implied that Mongo is gay throughout the film. There you go. You've got like, you know, the black people, the gay people the less well off they're kind of your protagonists against the state that's something yeah <laughs> i don't know so the film ends mm-hmm. <laughs> kind of surprisingly is the the settlers of this town who have all banded together have constructed an identical town a few miles <laughs> <laughs> away from it so that all these evildoers you know the clan the nazis the robbers the pirates they'll all go ransack this other town and then they're going to blow it up <laughs> so they do that they build one of the funniest scenes is when you just see the horse fly up in the <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they build the town they blow it up i don't know I, I guess it doesn't really work they all keep like they go run after gene water and cleave little and then they end up like breaking into a hollywood set um and like the fourth wall kind of like comes crashing down and all the characters are now like running around uh, an, an, sets. An, another underrated line is like when it shows like the shot of like the, the studio cafeteria and there's a guy dressed as hitler and it's like how long are you yeah. on set and he goes ah oh, they lose me after the bunker scene <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very it's a very like mel brooks 
kind of yes. end. As everything just kind of goes crazy. And then it ends with Headley, Headley walking into a theater to watch Blazing Saddles to hide. And then he sees the characters outside the theater to get him. And he goes, oh, no. And he, like, runs out. And they get him. And then they watch the end of the movie. And, like, all is well. And Bart and the Waco kid, they ride out into the sunset. And, and all is fine. In a limousine. I don't know. It's like maybe the only way to like deal with the systemic like racism and problems in America is just to blow it all up. Maybe. I'm not sure that's a positive read, but that was my read on the end of that. Yeah. It feels uniquely Nixonian in that like I can't see this film being as funny if it had come out, you know, 10 years later or 10 years earlier. Yeah, I get I think that. There is something about the absurdity of Nixon that uh, that would like propagate films like this. Well, it, it's because it's it's not it's not a deadpan movie, but it like kind of only works in like a deadpan context. It gets like just very like straight up silly at certain points, but that's because it like silliness kind of only works in a more serious context. I guess I don't know what I don't know what I'm really. It's not like sarcastic, I guess, right? And in some ways like and it, it will just show things that like you could ostensibly see in like a older film being shown straight like the other thing that makes me laugh so hard is when mongo first rides into town and there's just the mexican guy who goes mongo santa maria and then runs away that's like i laugh so hard when that happens but like you could see that in like a regular john wayne movie not think about it but like the way it's just sort of like framed in like the context of everything else going on, it just becomes like ridiculous. And like things become so silly that like earnestness then also becomes silly. Like it's it's like a weirdly good male bonding movie, like between yeah. Cleavon Little and Gene Wilder. And there's just sort of like a anarchic view of it where it it just it just kind of plays a lot of like this the the you know straight as in like a comedy sense characters as like rubes. But but I don't know, it works pretty well. Yeah, it doesn't matter what happens as long as those two ride off into the sunset together. Yes. Great. Well, that's Blazing Saddles. What can we say about films in the Nixon era, Mike? Uh, what what connects these films? What's the deal? Again, I think there's kind of, and I think we saw this in the Trump era too, not, not to skip ahead, but there's definitely, I think, and granted this is a small sample size, but there is a, a focus on, on sort of like rural America in a way, right? This sort of forgotten America, if you will, the silent majority. And kind of a look away from maybe like you think of like the movies we watched in the past, whether it's Guess Who's Coming to Dinner or Lolita or something like that, which are all sort of like take place in this, this kind of like upper middle class context. These movies decidedly do not. And I think it's really maybe where we've seen the most divided America in both of these movies so far. Right. But I think a lot of the other movies went for like a universality, whereas like I think there's very much an us versus them for both Easy Rider and Blazing Saddles. Us um, and them are both parts of America. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. I I mean, yeah, they both deal with backlash. They both deal with culture clash. They both kind of deal with like society unraveling or members of society unraveling under the pressure and kind of just what's going on at the time. And they both kind of conclude with just like a fuck it attitude. It's like, well, you know, fuck it. <laughs> the comparison with the modern day is definitely apt. The, the hippies and counterculture of the 60s and 70s, you know, both kind of predicts the conservative rise of the next few decades. But I think it also has a lot in common with the GOP of today mm -hmm. is it's these people who are just a little bit outside of the standard halls of society and feel like it doesn't matter. And they are willing to just kind of say, fuck it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would agree.
Anything else on these films? I, I don't I don't think so. No, you should watch both of them, despite Lars's feelings about Easy Rider. I still gave it three and a half stars. I think it's fine. <laughs> you did. Great. Well, those are our films. And I should mention that though in this podcast, we only talk about films related to Nixon through that degree of separation and those in his era. If you're interested in learning how Nixon has become a pop culture icon and how pervasive his character has been, I actually have an article up on thepostwriter.com about it. Richard Nixon, I think, remains very relevant to this day, both in terms of policy and as a matter of pop culture. So I would recommend it if you're a fan of this podcast. That's my plug. <laughs> Michael yeah. edited it, so that's his plug, too. <laughs> and that is our show. As always, we hope you enjoyed it. And you can drop us a line on social media or on thepostwriter.com or at contact at thepostwriter.com. Let us know any movie suggestions you may have for presidents coming up or just if you like the show. In the meantime, I have been Lars Emerson. You can find me on Letterboxd at Lars Emerson. Hi, Mike Levito. You can find me on Letterboxd at Ameramike and on Twitter at MLevito. And Watching Mates is a Postwriter podcast brought to you by thepostwriter.com. You can like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever podcasts are found. And of course, you can follow both Mike and myself on thepostwriter.com. And we will see you next time to discuss the films of the very brief Gerald Ford era.